Hey everybody, it's the MPG Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Mosler. This week I've got Lee Winters from Spanish Moss Home Buyers in Savannah, Georgia. Hi everybody, yeah. Thanks for having me. How's it going, Lee? Doing great, thank you. Um, so kind of my first question um, has always been right along, so where did you start? Like, let's say you get out of high school, right? What did you do between then and right now? What's the path oh, been? Oh man. Um, I'll try and keep this short because I basically move around like I'm running from the law. So No, man. Tell us all. Tell us the deeds. <laughs> High school to grad school, thought I was going to be an academic professor, so got a master's in geology and then an MBA. Uh, wound up going and selling analytical instrumentation in laboratories called HPLCs or a variant of. That moved into a Fortune 500 company selling life sciences software, basically uh, everything you need to do drug development, discovery, and production for uh, you know the big pharma guys. So I was selling directly to Allegan, Pfizer. Um, and their likes finally got real burnout on corporate America. Like the, the money was great home office travel. It was, it was pretty cush, but I was just done with it. Uh, so sold everything I own, got on a 40 foot sailboat and spent five years sailing around the world. What? Yeah. Left out of Houston, Texas, went down to the canal and just kept going West all the way, literally around the world until I got back where I started. Um, Wound up losing my mom while I was on that trip, and my dad was still back where I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. And it was, I was close to the end of my trip. I kind of did a an epic run across the Atlantic to get home way faster than I'd expected to. But you know, it was time to go back and be closer to family again and kind of figure out what life was going to look like after being a vagabond sailor. So next thing I know, I get off a sailboat and I'm driving a tractor in southwest Missouri, uh, <laughs> putting up around 20,000 small square bales of high-protein uh, hay, Bermuda grass hay, for uh, racehorses. Like, each bale of hay had like 20% protein, so it was crazy Holy stuff. God. It was like eating a steak, but it was Bermuda grass. <laughs> um yeah, that randomly got parlayed into uh, running a political campaign. Um, didn't see this coming, but it was just the farm connection because we were working our butts off and basically going absolutely nowhere. Um, next thing I know, I'm I'm board president for a group called New Approach Missouri, which legalized medical use of cannabis in the state of Missouri. What? Yeah. Um, That's an awesome thing to be a part of. It was cool. It was really cool. Like I got in deep with the investment and startup community around the cannabis space in California through a group called ArtView. Okay. So uh, like tons of different series rounds. Um, got involved with that. A couple of startups myself. And then it just got kind of overdone. Like the cannabis space is brutal. Like having your bank account shut down and everything else. And it's at the end of the day, it's commodity. Um, and it's still like, it, it just, especially once we were done farming and in the year that I was running the campaign, we didn't get it done in 2016. They have since gotten it done, um, in 2018, but I was out. Um, I moved to Denver, Colorado at that point, um, started another business, uh, basically doing product design overseas, working with a couple of suppliers that I knew in China. And then importing those, selling them through Amazon, and like all the work was front loaded into the uh, the product design and manufacturing. But once that was done and the copy was written on the advertising side, it went straight to the Amazon warehouses, and I never had to touch the product again. Um, so you know, you sell it until you run out. You order more product, it goes right. in, and you can yeah. travel and plenty of money for beer and diesel for the sailboat. <laughs> um, so at that point, you were still sailing. No, no, I'd been off the boat for a little while. The I still have the boat. It's in Guatemala, so I will occasionally 
check out, go get the boat, go tool around Belize and the islands down there for a little while and then come back and go back to work. Um, and then I was about to go do that full time and just run the Amazon business. Uh, but a woman that I'd known for many years and I wound up taking a serious turn. She was in Charleston. So I thought I was going to be opening the real estate business in Charleston. Um, but once I get into that market and started taking a closer look, I'm like, this is nuts. Oh, I mean, it's just, nuts up there, yeah. I just, yeah, I'm like, I just need to pause for a second, look around, came down to Savannah. I'm like, well, this is amazing. Let's do this. <laughs> so here I am, open doors, uh, January 1, 2020. Really? Yeah. I didn't know it was that recent. Mm-hmm. I thought you'd been doing it for a while. No, I'm totally the new guy. So you do a great job positioning yourself. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like it's not fake. I don't pretend that I know more than I actually do, but I don't correct people uh, right. if they're I mean, giving what's the point. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And I, I think part of it is like I've been in sales my entire life, and at the end of the day, buying and selling real estate, as I've kind of found my niche in Savannah, is just that. Like learning how to work with the homeowners to get the properties purchased in an area where, you know, there's plenty of margin both for me if I fix and flip it myself or turn it over to another investor because my pipeline's not ready for one yet. Um, you know, it's it's a skill that gets cultivated. Yeah. Yeah. How did you decide on real estate? So, like, what was that transition where, like, okay, I'm moving to Charleston with this girl. Did you know before then that you were thinking about getting in real estate or was it something you just kind of discovered, like, I need to do something and that makes sense? It was kind of a, a family draw. So, I've got a brother that's out in Amarillo, Texas, mm-hmm. um, and he got into it probably been six years ago now and i would hear bits and pieces of it and i went down to visit him one time like uh love spending time with my niece and nephew down there went to visit the whole family and uh i start going on a couple of buy calls with my brother and like one of them is this house where the the owner's in prison and the mom had called my brother to come check it out since then uh you know, the addicts essentially had tossed the house looking for anything. And when you climb in, you literally had to climb in over a three-foot mound of rubble. And that was the floor of the house that you had to crawl through doorways and windows and everything else to try and get around. My brother bought it for 6000 bucks, and I saw him sell it three weeks later for, I think, 18 or $20. Um, I'm like, that's really interesting. Like, I'm not sure this is what I want to spend my time doing. <laughs> but the more I looked at it, the more we got to talking about it. Um I knew if I was going to live in the States, like it's way cheaper to live on a boat in the third world. Yeah. You don't need a lot of income. But if I was going to come back, there's a five-year-old in my life now also, then I needed to start making some real money and I wasn't going to go back into the corporate world and this kind of ticked all the boxes. I got you. And um, so we were talking before you'd been part of like a franchise home buyer yeah. deal. So like how did you discover them? Was it Did you know somebody that was part of it already or just Google? or? Yeah, it was – so my brother – also jumped into a franchise model um, and that's where he cut his teeth so to speak Um, he had since gone independent and we got to talking about it quite a lot because you know youtube university is absolutely real there's not a lot of secrets on how to do this business i use that term all the time yeah the barrier to entry is extremely low um one thing i don't think most of those folks tell you though is like you're gonna pay to learn it and that's either in time, going slowly, trying to find content that's actually actionable and usable, that's that's legit and actually works well. Um, for me, at least, going through the franchise system, you know, it's it's a much larger investment in money up front. Yeah. But you know, you see where I am ten months to the day later, 
And yeah. the ramp up has more than paid for itself in the return. And I've since gone independent. That's where Spanish Moss Home Buyers comes from. So, like, I kind of liken the franchise to training wheels. They really let you learn how to pedal hard fast and get up and off the ground. But those same pedals, if you hang on to them, can turn into drag pretty quick. So you, you've just got to figure out what works for you. I know the, there's a ton of guys that still love the franchise system because so much of the responsibility for the day-in, day-out operation is taken off their plate. They don't have to worry about it. Um, just kind of depends more on what you want, whether, whether it's kind of a, a business in a box given to you that you can pump money into and make money out of or whether or not you like being more in the nitty-gritty overall development and strategic decisions of which way you're going to take your business. How does, for those that don't know, how does that franchise model kind of work? So like how did it start sure. and then how does, you know what I mean? Um, and I got to be a little bit careful because part of the termination agreement means I, I don't really represent myself okay. as even being a former member of that franchise. Okay. I got you. So like um, if you're speaking in, like, let's just say that you know somebody, like, you know, like, how the general thing works, yeah. right? So, like, how does, like, the general thing work based on... I mean, I wouldn't go more than what you can find on Google, I guess. But. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, in its simplest terms, you pay money for advertising. They take care of all that for you. Um, leads come in. Those are split up based on the number of franchises in your area. Uh, you sell the deal, and you pay, essentially, a percent commission back to the franchise office. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Um, how many, well, okay, I guess we'll pivot off that. So then now you start your own thing. How long ago was that? How long was Spanish Moss Home? So that's all real recent. Okay. Uh, and again, timing wise, I have to be a little bit careful. Okay. Spanish Moss opened its doors October 2nd. What is today now? Like the 6th? Oh, the 6th. The yeah. So we're talking five days. Wow. Is... Now, like it's safe to say that I've been building the infrastructure for Spanish Moss okay, for six you. months. Okay, I understand. Um, so that when I transitioned out of the franchise system, like all I did was throw a switch and it was ready, fully operational with everything built out exactly the way I wanted it. So that when I hit the ground running with Spanish Moss homebuyers, it was ready to go. Okay. Um, and like as a result, like leads are pouring in. I've bought two houses. I've already sold one of them. And yeah, it's it's. That's a crazy first it's five days. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> like it is. It's absolutely crazy because I, I like being able to build it the way I wanted it to work, and targeting the essentially the properties or the subset of the Savannah market that I want to go after. It's awesome. Like it's been so much fun. The like the phone is just absolutely blowing up. Um, I don't know if I muted that. I might want to do that here in a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been great. And I, I think there's no end to the opportunity in, in the Savannah market. Okay. Hey, do me a favor. Will you pull this down just mm. a little bit? Sorry. Yep. No, you're totally fine. It doesn't have to be closer necessarily, but just like... So the mics are like real particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, anyway, so so that's a great first five days. Yeah. What, where are you... See, I don't know. Can you say like, where are you seeing... What's What's... What what do you guys do? What's what's your secret sauce without giving out too much, without creating too much competition, right, or whatever? Yeah, and that's it. So, the reality of it is nothing special. Um, like the cool part about it is the deal that I just bought, not the one that I sold. Um, it's over in South Gardens, and it came from a referral from my closing attorney here in town. Okay. Um, so building out those referrals, like it, 
I've done 20 deals so far this year. And just through that network of actually, you know, doing what I say I'm going to do every single time has built enough credibility and trust with people in the market that I'm starting to get really good referral leads. Um, my marketing is a mix of kind of everything, depending on how much time I have to devote to it. Um, that's everything from literally, you name it, direct mail, cold calling, uh, RVMs, text messages. Uh, I like to do a lot of list stacking and subsets so that I'm, I'm really focused in on, on particular market niches that I don't think are commonly hit in Savannah. And they've proven to be really highly productive. Um, you know, it's everything too from, you know, I, everybody's got driving for dollars and I think it's completely overutilized, but I still do it. The only difference is if I'm going to take the time to stop and punch an address into driving for dollars, I'm going to go knock on the door instead. Uh, I, I'm still going to put them in driving for dollars and then move that over to my actual uh, other follow-up apps where I skip trace and then call that landlord or call that owner. Um, but I'm also going to go hang a flyer and then I'm, I'm just going to try and talk to the owner. It boils down to that simple. It's most people will do the 60% that gets a name and an address, but then they don't do the thing that actually matters. And that's actually talk to them, hassle them, call them. And until you get a no, it's still a live lead until right. they actually tell you to stop. That deal is alive. I think that, um, in our business, that's something that we're kind of like, we've always been pretty good about getting people to call. But like one of the things we've, we struggle with the most is like the sales aspects, which which yeah. I think we're getting better with now. Like once you recognize that, right, you get better. Yep. I think that's a I think that's the thing that a lot of people. It's easy to drive around with, with deal machine, right? Yeah. Take a million pictures. Exactly. But and when then, the phone rings, that's where the real rubber meets the road, right? Can you perform when that happens? One hundred percent. And like that's the the entire that's the whole business. And where everybody's talking about, like you see them all the time in the Facebook groups. People come in like, "Hey, I've got hot deals. Come and drop your emails." drives me nuts i'm like <laughs> all the gurus tell everybody to go build your buyers list but the reality of it is if you're actually buying a deal you're gonna have no trouble selling it no like you'll it, have it's it, the market's red hot yeah like, disposition right now is the easiest side of the business yeah like it takes little to no effort the trick is actually explaining to a homeowner that's in a distressed position why your number makes sense and it's not and again, that's even a terrible way to put it because if you're not solving their problem, if you're not actually doing what they need to have happen, your number is irrelevant. It doesn't yeah. matter what at all. Um, and I do. I just think you see that a lot in Savannah. There's a lot of folks that are going out there. Like I buy, out of the 20 deals I've done this year, five of them are from wholesale contracts that have fallen through. They eventually find their way to me or I follow up with them. They call. They're already a lot of times angry and untrusting. Yeah. So I've got a couple of references from sellers that I've worked with repeatedly that are so happy with the transaction that they're happy to talk to any potential seller that I have on my behalf as well as my closing attorney. Um, and it's, again, it's just building the trust and then structuring the deal such that it really works for them and they're happy with it as opposed to feeling like they're giving something away. What did you do... So I find that really interesting, getting former sellers to yeah. testify on your behalf. So how do you do that? Like, did you take a video and you send it to them? Or do they, like, literally call those people every time? It's more live calls and text conversations. Um, like, I do. I, I hold my sellers' hands start to finish. Um, I don't let any 
any space build where uncertainty or doubt or questions on whether or not it's legit or moving forward. They know exactly the timeline from the day that we signed the contract to the day that we're going to close, who's going to be in touch, what the questions are going to be, what the process looks like. And a lot of them I explain, like, it's going to seem like absolutely nothing's happening and that we don't even have a deal for two weeks. And then all of a sudden it's going to happen real fast. Right. Um, and they get it. And they're extremely appreciative because like the, nothing kills a deal more than doubt or uncertainty. And if you leave room for those things to build and grow, you're going to go to closing and you're going to find out you don't have a deal anymore because they didn't trust that the contract was real and maybe right. they've done something else or they've decided to sell to somebody else. Um, and I would say a lot of that doubt is caused by miscommunications or lack of communication, right? Like, Yeah, and it, and it is. It's, it's absolutely those two things. It's, it's either miscommunication and that the person, you know, in my role, the person buying the house, acquiring the property – doesn't actually understand it very well themselves, in which case, don't pretend you do. Let the person know that, hey, I'm new with this, so I'm kind of figuring this out. Here's what I think I can do for you. And I may not know all the answers, but we'll work through it as long as you're comfortable with that. And most people, like, if you ask somebody for help, that's the most endearing thing you can do as long as you've built the rapport before you ask for help. Um, so, like, how do you approach that conversation? Like, you just walk in and you're like, hey, I need a test. Like, See, what I do like is... Most of my outbound marketing is automated. So by the time my phone rings, it's either somebody that's ticked off and they want off my list, right? Uh, which is just part of the business, or they're kind of ready to talk. Um, and at that point, you know, I, I do. I just tell them exactly what my process is. You know, I, I, I've got a short list of questions. Here's the process. Uh, and then one of the things that I do that I don't think people do enough is I verify that what I've told them my process to be one sounds good to them that they understand it and they're willing to jump into that process because as soon as I've got their agreement that it's a process that we're going to be going through they understand that you know I'm not throwing them a cash offer right now that's not what I'm doing in any way shape or form we're going to go through a process to get to a point where I will then make you an offer assuming I understand all the ins and outs and we've structured a deal that meets both our needs so you you let them know it's going to be a wholesale deal like right up front not necessarily no because i so there's a thing and i i, I definitely <laughs> i know it's a tough question sorry I no know. it's not it's, it's not that at all I, I just think i do it different than most people and i've also this is not probably a popular opinion and all the gurus and trainers and everybody really going to come down on this hard because it's not what they teach at all. In my opinion, you shouldn't be writing a contract if you don't have the intent to buy the property. Like, the legal contract is exactly that. And I think it's also part of the reason I'm successful is because I'm actually buying everybody's house. I don't care if I find another buyer. I don't care if i write the check myself to buy the property i can do that or if i want to put financing behind it i can do that also that all that is in place so when i tell somebody i'm buying their house i am going to buy their house and typically i take title on my properties before i sell them on okay um do you do anything to them in that downtime or it's just like i just get them and then i just depends on the property like i had one it's all said and done it was over on belmont uh this thing had been a rental for years, and I don't know how many cats they had in this place, but the de 
agree to which it punched you in the face with cat urine when you walked in and like oh i love it <laughs> um i mean it was bad but i loved it but it's also tenant occupied so on Wait, that one people who live in there with yeah that? absolutely um i had to take title to it work with the tenant on a cash for keys basis to get them out happy so that i could then scrub the property and clean it down to get a group of investors into it to sell it um it was a good rehab. It didn't fit my buy box. I'm super critical. Like I've made so many mistakes on the houses that I picked to to flip myself. That now, like out of the 20 deals I bought this year, I'm doing three rehabs in Savannah this year. Okay. Um. So I really do. Like I, they have to perfectly fit into my buy box before I'll actually take the time to 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 hold them, rehab them, and then retail out of them. Um. I feel like I just lost the thread of where I was going. What were we talking about? We we're talking about um. Like the wholesale, like, uh, so whether or not you buy them and you said like you had cleaned out the house before your investors come in. Yeah, that's it. So it was going back to the buying process also. And and the fact that like, there's a ton of integrity that I bring to it. Not so much like integrity. Yes. But authenticity. Yeah. I am never misleading the homeowner from the word go. There is not one aspect about what I'm doing that I can't share with them entirely. And when I tell them that I'm buying their property, I am going to buy their property again that doesn't in any way negate my ability on the back end to either sell that contract if I want to move that to another investor, take it down, uh, list it as is retail. Like, I don't have one play, though there's a whole playbook. So, it, it, like, and that's the other reason. The reason I think I buy quite a few deals is, like, if there's money to be made out of it, I'll do whatever's necessary to, to structure it. There's one I'm looking at right now where a guy called me and he desperately needs to foreclose on a property. And I'm like, have you talked to an attorney about this yet? And he's like, that's the thing. I need somebody to actually pay for the foreclosure, and then I'll sell them the house once we're done. So the more I dig into it, he wants to sell this house for like 50 grand. He's not the owner. He's the note holder. So he's selling the note? He wasn't. We're talking about that now. <laughs> so, like, and I explained to him, I'm like, the only way you can sell the home for 50 grand is if you foreclose. And I can't help you do that because if the owner themselves, who owns like four or five other properties around town, declares bankruptcy, then it's a completely muddled mess and there's no good way by which we can get out of it. And you're going to be out thousands. Exactly. Yeah. So I explained to him the only way this could work is if you sell me the note for, you know, 80, 90, 95% of the par value, I'll take that note. You get to cash out because she's not paying. We know that much. Or you can foreclose and do this. Whichever works best for you, let me know. I'll be happy to work with you or put you in touch with a foreclosure attorney. So don't know if that one's going to work yet. Um, I find the bank note thing very interesting. I love it. There's some guys making a killing. Yeah. The, and again, so I'm really lucky. Like everybody needs somebody to learn from. I like having a brother. Like we were never that tight until we both got into real estate. And now we got <laughs> something to talk about that we both really enjoy. But he he's been amazing because he's uh like he's he's given me so much insight that would take so many years to build uh, otherwise just through your own experience. He buys and sells notes like crazy. He does so much owner financing. Um, and then sells those notes on. And one of the things that I'm, I'm most excited about, and I'm still just dipping my feet into this, is getting into owner financing where you are the note holder because I'm a terrible landlord. I've done it, and I am not good at it. I hate it. 
Um, but if you're the the note holder, if you own the mortgage on the property, you have no responsibility for the maintenance of it. It's less of making sure it's insured and that the the payments are being made. Yeah, and you get, I mean, the interest rate on that. You know, what I mean, like eight to ten percent. I mean, yeah, that's. I awesome. don't know why more people don't do that. I, I think it's just one step further outside the box. Like, you've got everybody talking sub two and all these other crazier deals, but some of that traditional stuff is, I think, much more accessible and easier to get into. Um, it is, is. It's just not the norm. Is there any kind of federal regulation on land contracts at all? Do you know? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question at all. How do you mean on land contracts? On acreages and developments on that side? Or? No, no. Like, what I mean is, um, like, owner finance deals, right? Like, if you sell the house yes. to somebody... Is there a, yeah. uh, you have to follow the same rules of the mortgage company? Yeah, basically, you need to get pretty comfortable with Dodd-Frank. Um, because depending on how you structure it, it's not as it's not nearly as severe as you know, your Wells Fargo or Bank of America, but there are definitely consumer protection regulations that you need to be aware of. And how you structure your deal can trigger those. So you um, is there attorneys in town that specialize in that? I mean, I don't That's know how common is that? Like, it, how many lawyers would even deal with that kind of stuff? There's not a ton. Um, most good closing attorneys, if they're fairly experienced, can do note transfers. So if you're buying a note, that's not that big of a deal. You're really just buying and selling the warranty deed on the home. Um, if you're offering, yeah, most folks can do it. Like, basic seller financing, like if you own a property outright and you want to sell that on terms... It's just a promissory note. Like, it's really pretty easy to put that together, and most closing attorneys can do it. How many, um, I guess let's transition here a little bit. Sure. Or what, uh, what's been the toughest deal you've had to do? What's been the toughest, and, and, and can you kind of walk us through how you solved the problem and then, you know, got the deal done? <laughs> <laughs> That's the noise everybody makes when I ask them that question. Yeah, it took me a second, and then when this one came to mind, I'm like, yeah, that was... It wasn't the toughest. I oh, it kind of hurt, and I'm gonna come across like <laughs> such an a hole. But so there was this deal. I want to leave names and specific addresses out, but it was over on Anderson. Okay, great little block house, great shape. Um, owned jointly by a mother daughter, and foreclosure was pending, but due to military service, it couldn't be. Couldn't actually be foreclosed on, but the bank was poised to do so as soon as that was lifted. Right. Um, so they call. We come to a cash deal. I buy the property, and we had made arrangements. And you got to be so careful about this. This is letting the homeowner stay after closing. Um, basically, just no. Never. Just don't. There's <laughs> no. There's there's always an exception. Yeah. Um, this was one, so I gave them two weeks, had a uh, seller holdback drawn into the contract, so a portion of net proceeds stayed in escrow after closing until they vacated. Um, they weren't vacating, and I needed to get this place sold. Um, I think I had my own cash in it, so I was kind of looking to pull that back out. I knew I wasn't in this one for the long term. I had such a good relationship with the mom. Uh in this mother-daughter deal. The daughter was working in D.C. I mean, she was dear to my heart. I would just go sit and chat and visit with her. Like, we, we had amazing conversations. And I had to call and tell her, you know, Miss uh, X, 
the sheriff's going to be coming around later this week to serve eviction notice. <laughs> Dang. How'd that go over? She literally said, Mr. Lee, I totally understand. Wow. We are still amazing friends. <laughs> we still talk. Uh, she's relocated up to, to South Carolina, but she's really keen to, to see how the house has come out. It's already been uh, rehabbed through another investor. Um, she's gotten pictures. She and I, we stay in, in great touch. The daughter's happy. The family's happy. The woman, an 85-year-old woman that I served eviction notice to. That's a tough position. We still get along in. great. It was yeah. brutal. But like, so, like, that was the worst side of it. Like, and I, I felt horrible going through that eviction process. And we didn't actually evict her. But what, what it did was it drew a line in the sand. And like, guys, we did make a deal. This is the progression that we're going down. I don't want to evict you. The money in escrow, I still want you to have that. That's your money. But you do have to go. Otherwise, this is where we're going to be in about 60 days. Um, so they made arrangements to move on. They got the, the net proceeds out of escrow once they vacated. And I even paid a thousand bucks to hire another guy that I know with a truck to move her to her new place. Like, so that's it was, awesome. Yeah. Like, it, it, I don't like, I never want to put somebody out of a house. Right. Um, like well, I mean, I, nobody wants to evict people, right? Exactly. Like, and I will do everything in my power. Same thing on that house on Belmont, like the tenant needed cash to be able to get out i've done i do this quite a bit like i extend cash to people up front to move um if it's the owner i put that as a line item on the closing statement so i get it back at closing um if it's a tenant it's just cash for keys you know from 500 to a thousand bucks i try not to give it directly to them i let them know that as the new homeowner like i was on belmont i'll i'll be a reference for them uh and then also just cut them a check and say if this will help as the deposit on the next place, I'm happy to give this to the new place. That's honestly been something that we've kind of pivoted towards too, because like it's so tough. We're getting all these calls from all these people with tenants yeah. and um, kind of in the middle of the year, we sold a bunch of rentals that had tenants in them. Yeah. Well, those tenants turned out to be problems for our investors. Absolutely. And like, so now we're like, well, I don't want to pass a problem on, right? Like yeah. if we can make it easier for the investor, that's what we want to do. Every time. Um, and so we've kind of pivoted to that strategy too, kind of like trying to, it's just trying to find the fine line that what motivates people to leave, right? Like yeah. we haven't found much, like I don't want to put our numbers out there too much, but like 500 to 1,000, sure. we've tried that a couple times and it, it, it doesn't seem to be as motivating as when you go like a little bit higher. So I don't know. Is it the way you sell it? Like, or maybe, maybe we're just getting like a bad little bunch there and maybe it'll go back to, you know? No, it's, oh, there's kind of a lot to unpack there. Yeah, um, sorry. No, no, no. It's it's great stuff. The what I found repeatedly, and I think this is nationwide. Even if you're selling a rental property to a buy and hold investor, they want to put their own tenants in. It's just easier to write their own lease. They can yep. get in, do whatever repairs and upgrades to the property, Raise the refi it exactly, so that when they start, you know, it's a clean slate with a new tenant that they've qualified to their level of qualification. Um, at this point, I don't try and sell occupied properties anymore. I take them down. I give notice. I work with the people to get out. And then in terms of moving them, if all you're doing is cash for keys, yeah, there's not going to be any real motivation. Uh, letting them know that there's an eviction order in place while also offering them the cash for keys is where, you know, it's... Well, I hate the expression carrot and the stick, but it's... <laughs> it is both. It's like... 
So legally, and again, you know what? The I still think all of it comes back down to rapport with the individual. And I think you need to have as much or more with a tenant as you do with a homeowner themselves because the homeowner probably wants to sell if you're involved. You're not going to have much issue there. What can scuttle a deal is the tenant. So if you don't build good rapport with that tenant, it's just going to be problems all the way through. And how are you building rapport with those tenants? Like, are you showing up, like, regularly talking to them? Just It's a... I use every opportunity. So one of the things that happens is, you know, I, I've got to see the property and I may run a number of either inspectors and or investors through it. And I've got to do that in a way that's conscientious that works with the tenant schedule. Cause it's, it's imposing. Like you're walking through their life and poking through their bedrooms and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the time. Like I, I work with, like my investors know this kind of a playbook. If you're coming to look at one of my houses, I'm not going to be, if it's a tenant occupied property, I'm not going to be with you walking through the house. I'm going to need you to take responsibility to do the inspection. I'm going to be hanging out with the, the tenant because I want them working with me talking about anything, whether it's what the transition looks like. Cause they, by this point probably know I'm going to be the new owner. Um, Working with them to talk about, you know, what's their desired outcome? Were they thinking about moving already? Did they want to start looking for another place? If so, how much time do they need? Did they want to stick around? Is that something we should talk about? And, and if we do, like, what needs to be fixed? What doesn't work? And would they pay a little bit more if we go through some of those repairs with them? Um, again, it's just ask pertinent questions and shut up. Like find out literally what they need and you know that's an uncomfortable situation. Nobody likes change. The more you can feel out what that change looks like and uh, alleviate their concern on it, the better it's going to be. Yeah, I got you. What, you know, another funny thing about all the, the tenant thing is another problem we've been having is they're getting these houses for ridiculously cheap. Right? Yeah. Like they are stealing oh, yeah. these houses for years. <laughs> and they're like, it's insane. They got like nowhere else to go because yeah. they're paying you know, 300 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah, like, like you're living in a house. It should that's be like, a $1,200 rent rate. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Why do you think landlords do that? Like what? I find that really common in the city. Do you think that's common everywhere? Or do you think mm-hmm. that's something because the city's so old? It's everywhere. Uh, I've been that guy. Like it's, it is so easy especially if you are an out-of-state landlord, to not pay attention to a rental investment if it's covering whatever debt service you may have on the property. If it's free and clear, it's easy to do absolutely nothing. I've even, like, we had some commercial properties that we finally divested ourselves of because they were the deferred maintenance on that. We had milked those properties for way too long. And when we started looking at what it was going to take, we had a... Uh, restaurant leave and the keystone of the yeah the, the the primary tenant property was vacant we're putting money into it to cover the debt service on this point we had another tenant leave it's an old walmart satellite uh retail spot and it was just it was no longer worth it to us. it was in conway arkansas too like i've never it, heard of conway <laughs> it's outside of little rock like there's literally no reason to but there is not enough money in any deal to make me spend more time in the Ozarks between Missouri and Arkansas. Right. Like, 
it was a great place to grow up. I don't want to go back ever. <laughs> um, Which is funny because Missouri is crushing it for real estate right now. Yeah. You see how many guys are based in like Springfield? Absolutely. It's crazy. Like one of the world's best uh, real estate buyer trainers is based out of Springfield. Uh, yeah, John Martinez yeah, is there. Exactly. Oh, that's that's, that's what talking I'm talking about. about. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Like the Dossie team is there too. Yep. We follow them real heavy. Yeah, it's crazy. Why do you think that is? Are the tax advantages more in Missouri? I don't know. I have no idea why that is. Like it's <laughs> it's gonna be because I think John lives in Dallas. Like I don't know John Martinez that well, but like, yeah, I'm not sure. I do. I think they're based. Uh, I, I'm. I could be wildly wrong on this, so don't hold me to it. I think they're in Republic, which is a little satellite town outside of Springfield. Yeah, uh, Springfield was my hometown. Um, I don't know. Like I, I think. Oh man, I should not talk about Springfield. <laughs> There's this sort of complacent malaise that hangs over that part of Missouri. I don't know why. But what it does create is for those individuals that are entrepreneurial that want to get out and do the work, the opportunity's wide open. Um I was talking to a few people to buy out there and their cost per contract on deals was running three to four hundred dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I know. I think that's like a Midwest. Yeah. I mean, that's like across, right? Everybody's like, oh, the Midwest is dead. Look at the Southeast. Yeah. But now while everybody's looking here, people are making a fortune in the Midwest. In the Midwest, it's yeah. dirt cheap and there's very little competition. Like, even for all the, it's one thing I don't get. Like, I do think, like, real estate has always, always been a hot thing to get into. And there have always been gurus from Carlton Sheets on down the line. Yeah. Um, I don't think this is that much different. I think everybody got real scared this year, myself included, because I didn't know which way it was going. But as long as mortgage rates are down where they are, and the, the scarcity of livable properties is so low, historic lows, like until that changes, I, I think I think we're good. Like I think it's going to be full steam ahead for most people. And like the, the one thing that gives me more confidence about that than anything else is all the lenders, and I've spent the better part of this year as nicely as possible beating up lenders <laughs> trying to get better rates yeah they are all of a sudden getting super aggressive which tells me that they're they're back in they've, they've realized they've been on the sidelines a little too long so i guess that's a great segue into where do you think that all this is headed where do you think the market's headed what do you think the future's like um do you think we'll see a dip here like we've already got some seasonality coming into it. Like I'm already seeing days on market in just the Savannah Metro uh, start to extend out a little bit longer on my properties and some others. But I like I can't tease out whether or not that's just this time of year. You know, once schools start back up, whether it's virtually or otherwise, the market slows down. Um, I don't see anything on the immediate horizon that has me significantly pulling back. Like I I'm a I love liquidity over all else. So I'm protecting that a little bit more and using some more financing where I would otherwise be doing cash deals. Yeah. Um but otherwise, yeah, I I think it's I think it's good. You don't think it's going to dip? Here's what I here's what I would expect to have happen. So obviously nothing's gonna happen before the election. Yeah. Post election. Yeah, I mean, it's thirty days. Right? Yeah. What's gonna uh, yeah. Thirty it, days. You used to have this conversation like pre-election. It's still four <laughs> months away. It's, no. Now it's yeah. like early voting happens in Georgia next week. I think. 
Um, nobody's going to start foreclosing and evicting before the end of the year. I don't know if any new stimulus is coming out. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe more moratoriums. Maybe, maybe not. What I try and picture and plan towards is worst case. So no new stimulus is coming out and there's no more moratoriums period on evictions or foreclosures. What I have seen, and this is just kind of my gut feeling on it based on the data that I look at, is that we haven't, we still have the lessons learned from 2008, 2009. Even if there's a significant increase in foreclosures and defaults, what I don't think we're going to see is a flood of those hit the market. Like, we'll, Banks can hold them. Banks have uh, liquidity now that they didn't in the previous uh, mortgage crisis. This isn't a mortgage crisis. This is different. Liquidity is in place. The protections for consumer lending and investor lending have largely done what they were intended to do, um, which means I think we're going to see these sit on balance sheets for a little bit longer, and there's going to be a steady trickle back into the market where we may see things hold maybe a tiny dip, but like I think at the most we see a 5% drop in uh, property values as these things get worked through the system. I, I just don't see a flood coming. Do you think that the downtown rental market will come back? Like, let's say SCAD stays away for another yeah. year. Like, do you think that, mm. you know, I mean, what's that going to do to the rental market here? And I, do you think they're going to come back? Like, how soon do you think they're going to come back? I have no idea. <laughs> so this is one thing I... I I haven't done a deal. I've done two on 37th, one in Live Oak, one uh, a little bit closer in towards Midtown from Live Oak on 37th, 36th and 37th. That's as close as I've gotten to downtown. Like, I don't... You I don't like it? Not like I don't want any part of it. Really? Huh. I think it's... I think it's overdone. Like, the... I hate the feeling of it already. I don't... Like the short-term rental market has its place as an investment strategy for people to love it. Absolutely do it. I don't like the feeling of it. And especially the northern part of downtown Savannah, I think it just kind of kills it. It's the reason everybody's flocking to Midtown now. Um, yeah, I don't know if I should say this out loud or not. But <laughs> like My opportunity zone is around Truman and outside. Okay. Like, those are the areas where you've got bread and butter, cookie cutter, single family, three twos that you can crush it on indefinitely. Like Thunderbolt, Savannah State. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is we actually avoid those areas. Do you really? We like Live Oak. And yeah, we've been talking. I mean, we've done 18, 20 deals this year. And right almost on. all of them have been that area. No kid. Yeah. I love it. I mean, but I know a lot of, you know, I know it. I can understand what you're saying about. You know, the that is so hot it is nerve wracking. Yeah, right. Well, like it's appreciating so fast, and anything that rises that fast yeah. no, most normally falls. Right. I don't see a crash coming. Now, like Live Oak, and you're just far enough out of like true downtown. I dig it. Like I'll buy that stuff anytime I can get a reasonable deal over there. There's just not as many reasonable deals over there, which is why I'm trying to go where the there's more low hanging fruit. Yeah, which maybe. Maybe more people are like, oh, maybe that's why you're having so much. That could you know, be. I yeah. don't know about. But 
Like, no one's posting deals right now, though, so I don't know. Nobody, you know what I mean? Like, I'll be honest. Like the two that I just bought, they're not even going to go out on my mailing list. One of them might. Like my buyers are so hungry that I know who's taking the deal before I actually get it under contract. Right. Um, it's kind of weird. Like a part of me wants to go ahead and shoot these out because I feel like I need to feed the list. Like, hey, I'm still here. This is actually still happening. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But the same token, I mean, there's no advantage uh, to you doing it, is there? I mean, no, you're making the uh, money either way. Why exactly, not that's it. Um, so I wonder how much of that is like that. Then, like, I wonder how many people are actually getting deals, but this market's just so hot they're not going out. Yeah, I don't know. Because I, what I say is, when I say no one's getting deals, it's not necessarily that we are having a problem getting deals. Mm-hmm. Like we've been having a steady flow, like we're fine. But like, I'm constantly putting out videos and feelers. Like, yeah. send me what you got, and I consistently get. Nothing back. Which <laughs> makes me feel, so maybe those deals are just going off before, you know, because people have relationships that are obviously been there for a while. So maybe those are just, maybe those relationships are what's scooping those up. Or I, So one like, of the have things. Have you talked to a lot of other people in town about deal No. I, I, I keep blinders on. Like, and I used to. I used to have, I used to be signed up for every property mailing list. I wanted to see what other deals were coming through the pipe. Um, I quit. I, I just quit because <laughs> at the end of the day, anyone else's deal volume does not impact my ability to go find and sell. So the, say that again for the guys in the back. <laughs> <laughs> no one else's deal volume. And there are dozens of people wholesaling and hundreds fixing and flipping in Savannah, if not thousands. No one's deal volume in any way impacts my ability to go find, buy, and sell a home. Like, it's it's a distraction, not anything else. So, I'm guessing then that answers the next question, which is you really don't try to buy from other wholesalers at all. I I have. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a bad experience? Like, I know you can't. I don't I mean don't throw anybody on the bus here, right? No, yeah, and definitely no names. Like, there's some good folks out there. Um, My experience is that most wholesalers have no idea how to value deals. And it's not even so much that. It's not that they don't know how to value them. I, I hesitate to say this out loud also. Most wholesalers don't believe that they can buy properties where I buy them. And I'm like, I don't make 5000 a deal. Like, I'm not going to pass on a deal if that's literally all that's in it. And sure, I'll shoot that one through. But, like, my average net is significantly higher than that. And I think it's simply because most wholesalers haven't gone through enough sales training to understand where to buy the deals so that it's not a hamster wheel and something that really builds wealth. Um, and I think that's a major difference and why I've struggled to work with other wholesalers. Like I do have some, some folks that have shot deals to me and they make a few grand, um, JV once or twice. I never push my deal out to somebody else to sell. Like, uh, and I get this a ton. People want to JV my deals, but the thing is, if it's a deal, you actually don't need to JV it. Your yeah. deal is going to sell. Yeah. But if you're a new wholesaler in town, like, do not hesitate to give me a call. If you don't know how to work a deal or if you're about – and I want to say this, too. This is a pet peeve. So many people walk on contracts 
Like people come in and they want to wholesale, but they get a bot wrong or they don't have buyers. They don't know how to market. They don't know the face groups for whatever reason. They walk on a contract. Don't do that. Call me first. If not Josh or somebody else, let somebody that's got an experienced list and knows how to operate it jump in because at the end of the day, if you're not doing this to help the person whose home you're buying, whether that's a, a, on the high end, it's not as detrimental if that's another investor that's walking away from a rental. But on the low end, if you've got somebody that's got medical bills and they're facing foreclosure and you give them a, a sky-high offer that's not legitimate, you're going to walk on the contract, you have really screwed that person. Oh, yeah, because they plan their whole life around that. Exactly. Right? Like all like their this plans is, are. This is an absolute lifeline, and all of a sudden you are making the issue worse because they thought they had it solved. And now that's been taken away from them again, and they're starting from scratch. Don't write contracts if you don't know how to get them bought yourself. Um, if you are learning how to wholesale and you're just counting on the fact that you're going to find somebody to buy it, call me. Again, call Josh. Call any reputable uh, operator in the industry. Tell them what's going on. Be willing to give the deal away for free to help the seller. Most of us will be happy to JV that or give a finder's fee or something to compensate you if you brought us a viable deal. But make sure you do not leave your sellers hanging. Have more integrity than that if you're operating in this business because there's plenty of people that have none. Something that um, we actually operate under is, uh, I, and I bring this up all the time, have you ever read uh, Shoe Dog by uh, the founder of Nike? I always forget his no, name. I've heard this, but I haven't read it yet. Okay, so uh, he has this great line. You already heard this? What no, oh, okay. please. He, uh, he has this great line where he says that uh, making money in business is the same as making blood as a person. Yeah. Like, is it important to stay alive? Absolutely. But if your whole life is only about making blood, it's Absolutely. a pretty lousy life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, making money is great, but, like, if all you're doing is getting into real estate just to make a bunch of money, yep. you're kind of into it for the wrong reason. It's, right? it's going to get real hollow, real empty, real fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to... And you're going to hurt a lot of people on the way. Without right? a doubt. Like, well, and Savannah's a small town, too. Like, like you hear stories when people start burning other people or sellers or whatever the case is. Like, Savannah's just not big. You, oh, yeah. Everybody knows. Yeah. Somebody who knows the other person. And reputation yeah. here. Like, and again, I'm still the new guy. Reputation matters. If you're not dealing fairly and squarely with people, you're not going to be dealing with anybody for very long. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think things move a little bit different here. People definitely remember longer. Yeah. Right? Like, reputation is more, I think it's, maybe it's a southern thing. I'm not sure the culture here, but. It could be. Like, I'm still figuring it out. Like, I definitely get pegged as not from here pretty quick. And, I like, I, whether or not Missouri's southern or not is definitely debatable, unless you're from Missouri <laughs> and then it's southern. I'll tell you this. We're, I'm from Michigan, and we consider you guys part of the Midwest. So you guys, yeah. You, we, we claim you. Missouri's exactly. part of us. <laughs> and, and I think if you're north of that line between Kansas City, St. Louis, you're definitely Midwestern. Yeah. If you're down around Columbia at the school university area, yeah. you can kind of depends on where you came from before that. If you're in Springfield, you're Southern. Okay. okay uh, yeah. it, the whole state's just, it, I got I to quit ragging on Missouri. <laughs> uh, Misery. Yeah. Yeah. That's the joke, right? It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, Totally lost my train of thought. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, um, we're talking about oh reputations in the community. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, in Savannah. So like people realize I'm not from around here, and I really didn't know how much of a detriment that was going to be. 
but here's like just bring some professionalism to it and as long as you're doing as well as you can by everybody it doesn't have to be perfect people screw up all the time uh but as long as you're doing your best to do right by folks like people in savannah have been amazing since i've been here i I love this place yeah me too yeah it's been so good yeah the people are fantastic they're really nice yeah yeah everybody's real gracious yeah that's it and i do i think i think the southern thing also where the graciousness can be extended immediately but it, it can dry up pretty fast, too. Oh, yeah. If they really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Once again, somebody's yeah. bad side. That's what I was saying before. Is like I don't know if it's been vic- indic- indicative of the culture, but once you're on somebody's bad side, you're, mm-hmm. done. you're done here, right? That's There's it, like, without a doubt. There's no coming back from that. But, yeah. Okay, so I want to I'm gonna pivot again back sure. to what we were kind of talking about before because I did have a question I want to ask. Um, oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Lee, you're contagious. No. Um, it's not COVID. It's not <laughs> well, we can ask about that. How was business through COVID? What happened like right after COVID and then what's been? Uh, how did that play out? I'm trying to remember now exactly what I was working on when that hit. Everybody was terrified. All the lenders dried up. I timed the bottom of the stock market better than I ever have before in my life. Like I never try and time it. But all the lenders had dried up, and I'm like, this is going to be a buying opportunity. So I sold everything my IRA. And when I sold it, I sold it at like literally the day, the hour of the bottom of the market. Um, if I would have just left that in place, because the lenders have come back, and obviously the stock market's just skyrocketed back up again. Oh, I lost so much money. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but <laughs> the thing is, and it, as bad as that was, like, I'm good with the decision that I made for the reasons that I made it. I needed liquidity. I needed to be able to take down deals and turn them. And that was the immediate means I had to ensure that that was in place. Um, I also learned a lot about the if, if you're working with a lender and they quit lending, they're not servicing their own loans. They're not lending out of their own funds. Be careful because it'll happen again. Um, find out who the lenders were that quit or that continued lending through the entire process. They're servicing their own deals and they're lending out of a pool of money that's either investor fueled, uh, or investor funded, uh, or it's their own. Um, and those guys, the rates may have changed a little bit. Their diligence may have changed a bit, but that is the safest source of lending going forward. Um, I just kept buying houses. I actually, I think I put seven on a contract in April and wow. Yeah. Right. So that's the exact was, opposite of what we did. We really? totally stopped marketing and everything for the month of April. No kidding. And then we're like, wow, we're done. Like, now we're a month behind. Yeah. Yeah, which we've caught up, but like... For sure. Yeah, we totally didn't do a single thing for that whole month. Everybody yeah. was spooked. Like, <laughs> I, I honestly don't think there was a, a correct response. Like, it could have gone either way. Like, it was... And we were petrified. Like, I don't want to keep, like, just blowing money on marketing and yeah. stuff and then have no, you know, I mean, Absolutely. all these contracts that uh, nobody's buying. You can blow a ton of money in a hurry and quick, you know, your yeah. powder's gone. Yeah, the you know, letters are, they start adding up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Real fast. I did. You know how much direct mail gets sent around in Savannah? Oh, it's crazy. I had, uh, again, going back to Belmont, um, the day I put that under the contract, the the seller and I had a, a pretty good relationship. He's like, he knew I was a cash buyer, knew, knew I was going to do something investment-wise with the property, and he's like, I'm just going to keep all the direct mail I get. I'll give it to you in the uh, closing folder when you sign the papers. Sure enough, there's like eight different letters and yellow postcards and notices, and like there is no shortage of direct mail in Savannah. 
You know, it's funny, though, because a lot of people tell me that they're just, like, normal, white, basic. They're nothing special to them. Yeah. Which is weird because, like, you watch, like, like literally just spend, like, 10 minutes on YouTube. Yeah. And it tells you what kind of direct mail to send. Yeah. And that's the kind we send, and we get, like, returns, like, every time. I believe it. And, again, I'm I'm terrible at following directions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously what you're doing is working, though, right? I'm not... That wasn't directed at you, necessarily. No, no, no. I get it. Like, I did take it completely personally, though, because mine's a plain white postcard. (laughs) Oh, it is? Yeah. Why? Um, The difference with mine is, one, it's branded with Spanish moss, most of Mar. It's not in-your-face obnoxious. It actually... Like, I'm really kind of business-focused. Like, I was in the Fortune 500 world for way too long. yeah. But it's also what I know I'm probably going to lead with when I go on that buy call. So instead of trying to fit into a different box or it, I, I put the card out there that best represents who's going to show up on the buy call. And that's me every time. So, you know, the content's a little different. I'm not going to tell you what the content is, yeah, but it's definitely a white sauce, background. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard of, um, well, we might talk, we talked in this a minute ago, Ryan Dossie? Mm-hmm. So he, I always forget the name of, I think it's Ballpoint Marketing. Have you seen I've any? heard of it. I haven't checked it out. Oh, it's, so his yellow letters, they are pretty unique. So yeah. like on the front of the envelope, yeah, it's specific to the area you send it to. So if you send it to Georgia, yeah. it's got a peach. It's like the background of like oh, a peach. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Nice. And their response rate's like ridiculous. Like I believe 8% it. 8% or something. And I'll be honest, we haven't used it yet, but like, uh, but I've, we've been, we're, we're getting ready to start trying that out. Yeah. Because I think that. Those little unique things, right? Like as soon as somebody picks it up, like how many times you look at something that's like you It's know, touch points, right? Like yeah. what's gonna make that stand out of the stack of eight they got that month? Yeah. It's real. And yeah. it, it again, I, I think it's you know there's marketing fatigue. Do you use the same one over and over again? Do you mix it up? What's the shuffle look like? What suppression do you have? Like there's a million different ways to market. First batch I sent out in Savannah, oh, I screwed it up. You did? Yeah. Oh, I, everybody did. I, I did. I didn't have the right filters on them. Basically, all I got were calls for vacant city lots that literally kind of kind of worthless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's hundreds of them. These people had never been marketed to. So when my postcard shows up, my response rate was through the roof. And finally, like I, I didn't want to totally waste it, but I... Like there was nothing here. I didn't. I'm not a builder, so I'm not going to put something from the ground up. Um, I just don't have the experience there yet. I started offering a thousand dollars flat for any lot that anybody called on, and shockingly, like I haven't bought one of them yet. I don't really want to, but I think three of them might come through. <laughs> <laughs> I think the lot thing is really interesting because, like, we got a call yesterday on a lot that's right yeah. on waters, right yeah. on waters. I think and, I know, and I got some people that are already like interested. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like, so again, if you like lots, I got a lot of old lot leads. Which I hate lots, man. I hate them. I, I do don't know too, anybody but... that like buys. I mean, but I mean, like the waters corridor is interesting, right? So, like, sure. If you, like, if you can find the buyer, you can get rid of it. Obviously, correct. There's got to be somebody building. That's the houses. trick to everything. Well, and this is it. So, and like, this is how you learn the business too, right? You have to go out on a limb, put it under contract, and buy it. And then spend the time to market it, and it's just like anything else. You'll find the pool of buyers that are building one-offs. Because yeah. you've got to have a one-off builder that's going to be able to take advantage of an individual lot. Most people need scale, and a one-off building, unless it's building to suit them for a particular reason, doesn't make sense for most folks. 
Right. And I think still think like because it's so cheap to buy a house in Savannah, yeah. you haven't seen the same level of building here that you do in a lot of like uh, metros. For sure. Yeah. I mean, like it doesn't make sense, right? Like if you can buy the house next door for two fifty or you can or it costs three hundred to build the same exactly. size. Yeah. That's it. And there's so many cool houses around here with character. Oh yeah. Like the And that's it. Like uh, comparing I really do. Like I think Savannah is twenty years behind Charleston. And the pool of properties in Savannah that are going to be amazing in 20 years. Uh, it's going to be a totally different city. And I, I think it's on a fast track. So that's really interesting. That's the second time I've heard that from somebody in this community. Yeah. That, well, the other guy said, my friend Curtis, he said 10 years behind Charleston. Okay. And then I'm going to go ahead and just give it away. But he said Brunswick is 10 years behind Savannah. Yeah, I so believe like that. Like a little south, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the metrics on all that, or the we haven't done a lot of due diligence on that. But I do think that I understand why. Like, if you start looking at the port cities up and down the coast, right? Yep. Like Brunswick and really Beaufort, like they're kind of poised to to be the fill-in spots where there's still cheap deals. And I love Beaufort. Oh, really? That's the, is Beaufort, that a secret? Bluffton. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. Um, like buying anything. In Beaufort has been tough because those folks know their property values pretty well. So I, I'm not finding a lot of cheap deals. What I am getting more and more into are mobiles. I don't know if I should tell that either, but I love mobiles. You do? Yeah. So I, I hear that all the time, though. Yeah. they're At national level more than locally. But. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm not buying inside parks. Um, they've got to be – they don't have to be on a fixed foundation, but they need at least a half an acre. And if it's, you know, within an hour's drive of Savannah, it's a half acre or more, I'm real interested. It's cheap, and you can get them cheap. Yeah. 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 Well, here's not, not as cheap as you might think. Like, I was looking at a 3-2 uh, a double wide sitting on an acre and a half. It sold for 135000 But where are you going to find a 3-2? Exactly. You know I mean? By comparison. Well, and this was, this was down by Midway. Oh, yeah. That's kind of – I like Effingham. Effingham's great. I mean, I hate yeah. to like throw that out. Like, I feel like th- you know, this has been the first podcast where I feel like I might seriously be creating some real problems for myself here. I know. I think we both are. <laughs> but so I'll say this, and here's the reason that I don't hesitate too much to tell people what I'm doing. And at the end of the day, like, I, in one sense, I'm the laziest, hardest working real estate investor around. Like, I am real prone to cutting it off. And taken off for six months to go surf Baja or expedition travel of some sort. Like, that is what feeds me, and I have to go do that every once in a while. Yeah. But when I'm here, I have to make the money to go do that. Think about, like, you're in the Savannah Facebook groups. How often do people pop in? They've got a deal or they've heard of a deal. They'll throw it out there or drop your emails, and you never see or hear from them again. All the time. It's the norm. Yeah. Most folks, even if they get a deal or two done, will not continue the necessary activities to keep the third, the fourth, the fifth, the twentieth, the hundredth coming. And that's the trick. You just gotta keep figure out what works for you, do it again and again. And I, I don't think there's that many people that one realize how much work it is and then two are willing to do the work. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Gary V and Max Maxwell, that's their whole business thing, right? So yeah. I'll give away literally every single one of my secrets because I know literally almost nobody, nobody will, will do, do it. it. Exactly. Yeah. That, that was the thing. Like with, uh, with the Amazon business, I there's – go ahead and plug them. 
if you want to go traveling the world and you want to build a small twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar a year revenue to fund it that you can do anywhere remotely, go to Jungle Scout, watch their case studies, and you can start an online Amazon business for very little money. I've told hundreds of people about that and how I was funding my trips while I was out. Not one of them did it. They eventually had to go back to work because they'd run out of money while they're traveling instead of actually building passive income that lets them go do it. So what's your long-term play? Like, so like the wholesale side is tough because money's only coming in for as long as you're hustling, right? Yeah. Where's, what's your long-term play? Are you guys building buy and holds? I know we talked Absolutely. a little bit about notes. Yeah. 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 We're totally getting out. Yeah. Right on. So right now we're kind of under, should I say the strategy? Sure. Okay. Right now <laughs> we are, right now what we're kind of trying to do is just wholesale what we get yeah. and then buy what others bring to us. Yep. So we're just trying to profit off every part of the market you know what i'm trying to say um no you gotta explain that to me why wouldn't you i only have the capital to do so many at a time yeah so if i but would you make more money if you fix and flipped your wholesale buy instead of fix and flipping somebody else's wholesale buy but if i add up all the numbers at the end no so like if i can make money off your wholesale buy and also wholesale my own yeah so I'm profiting off everybody. Yeah. I'm gonna. I do better than if I just do what I what I'm bringing. Okay. In. I get it. Yeah. I'm doing a slightly different version of the same thing. Like I, <laughs> I can't walk away from a deal that has money it's in tough. it. Like I, yeah, I know. I, yeah. But the thing is, like I'll buy. Yeah. So I just put one under sales contract on East 39th. This is uh, the first full rehab I did in Savannah. Um, I got a bot great, but one, I didn't have the investor list then that I do now. And the offers I was getting for it weren't great. So I was going to make maybe five or 10 on it. For me, that's kind of a waste. Like I know there's so much more in this deal. So I take it down and I do the rehab and that's actually become my strategy. And like, I don't advise this for anyone because <laughs> I'm, I'm literally rehabbing my way out of the deals that I will make the least on and I'll make triple because now I've got it going for a retail exit at 167, which is awesome. Um, it's just weird. Like I do, I, I make as much almost my wholesales as I do my rehabs. And it's because I'm rehabbing the deals that I don't want to throw away because the wholesale value is too low. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, like, we're not doing. So, like, if I flip those wholesale deals that we have, I don't know how much better we would do because by the time you get done with financing charges yep. and realtors' fees and everything else, that deal is eight to be pretty small. And if yep. I'm going to make $20,000 regardless. Yeah. You know? I, I, couldn't agree more. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, I'm not gonna. Why would I hold on to it for four months and make twenty grand, or I could just make twenty grand a day? And it's not always word. twenty grand. It's no. just yeah. You know, no, I'm I'm just, I, that's a totally arbitrary number. I get you. Oftentimes I, it's less. Sometimes it's more. Just saying, you know. The I don't want to like fill anybody's mind. It's the like, return on time, also though, right? Like because again, we're using twenty twenty grand as a round number. Mm-hmm. I can get in and out of a deal for twenty grand. Yeah. Awesome. Or I can spend four or five months, burn up a ton of capital, time, frustration, contractors, things go wrong, inspectors, and then I got to deal with retail buyers, which drive me insane. Just the nitpicking, everything you have to do to, 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 and I, I, 
I like I love them because they pay amazing prices for the houses that we sell. But you got to put so much into it to to make a return that yes, it's better than your wholesale uh, rates. But is it that much better? Like how what? Yeah. How many wholesale deals did you miss because your eye was on the rehab? Oh yeah, I got a great story. So we actually we did our first fix and flip, and we closed on it in February. Yeah, and we then spent the next five weeks there doing all the work ourselves because we have construction backgrounds. Yeah, and wasted five weeks of our lives. Yep, where we missed out on how many wholesale deals? We look back and we're like, "Did you ever call that person?" No, I forgot, man. Like I was doing X, Y, and Z at the Mm -hmm. house. Like it's like we probably lost. I don't even know. Who knows? You know, if you just say, let's just say every phone call that comes in could potentially be a $10,000 phone call. Yep. Like, and if you miss six calls, that's a $60,000 swing. Absolutely. Potentially. Yeah. It's yeah. huge. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, it's, so I had to fire my contractor on the East 39th deal. He just, he refused to finish it. He refused to do the final. Like, there was literally, there had been a week's worth of work for three weeks. I was just irate. I'm like, this is not worth it. So I'll fire him. Um, and again, there, there's literally nothing in the house that I can't fix. So I pinch one of his guys that wants to keep coming back to work. And it's me and that dude for the next seven days finishing this house. And I like, I was livid through the entire process. <laughs> like I, I actually really love fixing things. I love making old things new again. That's part of the reason I'm in real estate also. But, uh, yeah, the opportunity that I missed by not being able to answer my phone and go on buy calls because I was in that house twelve hours a day for seven days. Like it's it's incalculable. It cost me a fortune. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember now what I was gonna ask you earlier, which is what so what do you do to automate? Like are you totally on your own? Do you have I know you've only been in business for technically five days, but do you have any like virtual wholesale or virtual assistants or like what are you doing? Even going back from day one, like I'm a one man show. I don't really? even have an office. Like I home office. I love being able to roll out of bed, go work out, or do whatever I'm going to do. Grab a cup of coffee, and then like the third bedroom's my office. I have plants and a desk and my computer, <laughs> and I'm good in my pajamas. Um, yeah, I don't even have a VA. Like, nah, just me. <laughs> what's your What's your long term play? Like, do you want to make like a empire out of this? You're just trying to get like to. Make yeah. enough money to retire or money like I need money to do the things that I want to do. So what I I don't know what's enough. Um I still love liquidity to my detriment because I'm not putting the buy and holds in place and I hate being a landlord. So and again, like if I can make a quick thirty grand on a deal as opposed to you know, netting six hundred dollars a month, like I'm gonna take the cash every single time. I can't help myself. Um, it's the reason I'm getting really more focused on seller financing, becoming the note holder because I don't have the mortgage or the the landlord aspect of it. I've got to start building the long term cash flow. Um, I haven't decided exactly how I want to do that yet. And realistically, like through the rest of this year and through a good portion of next, if not the whole, I'm still about building more liquidity. Like I. At some point, I'm going to have to draw a line and say, okay, I'm now good here, and now I need to start switching. And what I should already do is, like, I'm, I'll am i do 25 deals this year, more or less. The goal is to double that to 40 or 50 next, and I should be taking one out of every 10 and taking that down as uh, either a seller financing deal or a buy and hold. 
Do you think that you'll be able to achieve that ex- working exclusively in this market? You're gonna have to like do some virtual. No, I won't go virtual. Um, like my success lies in being able to go, Me. go be with the seller and my investors. Like those relationships for me and building that is what makes it work for me. Um, so I'm not interested in virtual. I like I already work from Beaufort down to almost Jekyll Island and not as far inland as Statesboro. Um, I kind of love the rural acreages. Like there's a lot of fun stuff out there with that. You just like the the conversion of the leads that you get is way lower. <laughs> so you got to know that. Yeah. Um, but the margins are higher. Yeah, you can do pretty great with yeah, them. You can do pretty good yeah. out there. Yeah. But like... It's less competitive, right? I mean, you know, load up the MPG podcast because you're going to be spending a ton of time on the road. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you are. So you're going to want that entertainment, and you got to make sure that's not pulling you away from deals closer to home. But uh, yeah, I think I can do it. I think I can actually do 50 deals here this year or next year. I think you can too. Why not? 2021. Whatever you put your mind to, why not? Who says you can't? This is one thing I've, I've always found like, unless you've actually failed. I, and I think this is one of the, it took me too long to learn this lesson. If you are not reaching to achieve something that you are failing trying to get to, you have not yet found your measure. Like, you should be trying to do things that scare you and that are further out of reach than you think you can get. Odds are you're going to get there. And then you've got to reevaluate and realize, all right, I'm clearly not pushing myself. I'm not actually finding out what it is that I can't accomplish and then set a higher goal. Like, uh, expand on that a little bit. Like, you mean like you should be testing you against you? Correct. Yeah. I, like, I, 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 I've never been, I'm competitive, but not really with other folks. Like, the sailing, the solo trip around the world on the sailboat was, you know, I've been in the corporate world for way too long, and I was, I was comfortable in almost every environment, but I just kind of wanted to, like, could I even do that? Is it even... Like, I know people had done it, but could I do that? Like, the, the concept of taking a 40-foot sailboat literally on a circumnavigation by yourself around the world seemed so unreasonable to me that I'm like, all right, this is a goal that seems outrageous. I know I'm going to love it, but I'm also going to learn more about myself in the process than I can think of doing anything else. And then, but then I did it. And it didn't really, like, it was the weirdest thing because I get home and I finish the trip. I'm like, now what? Like what do you what do you <laughs> what do you do after, after that? that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. like I was literally there was a there was some terror about you know I didn't want to be the old guy sitting in the chair talking about that one thing that he did. Yeah. Um. So, like, it, it got kind of interesting because the failure that I found in life all came the endeavors that came shortly after that from the farm and not really being able to figure out how to make that economically viable enough to justify the time and effort we were putting into it to run the campaign that was not successful in 2016 and those were things that i put blood sweat and tears into um it was humbling but it made me so much better in everything else that i've done since because i know where my strengths and weaknesses are to a much larger degree i got you do you miss the sellout yeah (laughs) (laughs) so like Uh, i don't want to get too far off track here but i was curious so why do you store the sailboat in central america guatemala yeah guatemala uh so right where belize hits honduras there's a little crook there uh and the rio dulce runs into guatemala and it's got massive high canyon cliffs and it's extremely well protected it's one of the best hurricane holes in the caribbean ocean it's also dirt cheap 
So my boat is in the water, in a slip, in a marina. Uh, I pay like $235 a month. They put a wash on it every two weeks, start the engine, change the oil every year. Um, they're not repairing it and keeping it up, but I've got eyes on it, and I know it's safe. So it's also like sailing from the U.S. across the uh, Gulf Stream is miserable getting back into Central America. So it means I can fly down there. And I've got some of the most beautiful cruising spots right there from Belize through Honduras. And you just cruise around there. Yeah. So, like, how many times have you been down there? Like, how many times have you been to Belize? When's the last time you've been? Uh, I was there April last year. Um, was the last time I was there. And I got the boat all outfitted and ready to go. Really expedition sailing again. Rebuilt everything. Um, and then, you know, fell in love. And <laughs> It's a funny thing, huh? Had to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> Join the real world. Exactly. I guess you can't raise a kid like on a sailboat very easily. Uh, you can. They're cool kids. But, yeah, it, there were, we're here for now, for a while. There's yeah. actually a family on YouTube I watched for a while that I can't remember. They have a... It's not Bumfuzzle, is it? No, it's not Bumfuzzle. Yeah. It's Zatara? Is that a, I don't know. I don't guys. know. But anyway, yeah, they were like raising their kid. They were yeah. like corporate world Texas and just like bailed out. out. And now they're like it, it is. It's such a close knit community when you're out in the water like that. The the people are absolutely amazing because you're in this group of self selected individuals that have done well enough in life that they can go do this trip, or they've found a way to scrape a boat together and usually through their own experience and hard work have put the basic fundamentals together to go travel and just unplug. And the the community is it's unlike any other I've ever been a part of. Like it's so great. What's your yearly cost when you're on sailboat? Because you don't have gas and stuff, do you? Like I mean, all uh, no, there's is... some diesel, beer, food. Um, and so, it, like, it's a loaded question, and I hate this answer. For me, it was twenty grand a year, and okay. I was living very well, like renting cars, occasionally going in excursions, getting hotels, flying home once or twice a year. Um, it can be as much or as little as you have to give it. Like you can feed it. And any amount. It's literally however much you have to give it. Like, what's the least amount you've ever heard? Like, because I mean, do you guys oh. ask each other that? Like, when you're yeah, like, like there's a lot of cruisers on older boats. Like, if the boat's bought, paid for, and it's in good shape, um, they're living on three, four, five thousand a year. Wow. Yeah, that's dirt cheap. That's, well, yeah, I mean, that's you're crazy. fishing. You've always got a line out the back. If you're mostly in third world countries and you're avoiding Europe and some of the other places like that, um, like veg is real cheap around the world, and there's. Like, you can barter, trade, work for services. There was this Brit with his dad on another boat. Like, he cut hair across the Pacific. I'd never look better. Because um, <laughs> we would literally go get a, a six-pack of beer, set up somewhere in a park, and you'd have a Brit and an American sailor, and he would bring out all of his uh, haircutting stuff and just offer, like, cheaper free haircuts to the locals. And people would just sit up and line up, and we'd just sit there and chat. And we got we had the most amazing experiences just getting to know the community by setting up that little shop and entertaining folks and cutting hair. That's like, awesome. It was ridiculous, but it was so much fun. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's pretty unique. I don't I don't know anybody else that's had that experience. I mean, that's pretty... There's not a ton of us out there, and for most of us, once you're out, you don't come back. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're the oddity. Like without, well, and that was... World. Like, I never had culture shock anywhere ex- until I got off the boat and came back to the States. Really? Like, that was the hardest part of the entire trip. Going from there back. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. That's pretty wild. I mean, I guess because once you get used to the way the rest of the world lives, yeah. like, we're well, kind of in a bubble, right? I mean, we're totally in a bubble. It's all about work. There's not enough play. Like when you're in that life, because most people 
you're living modestly, but what you're doing is inexpensive, but you spend hours doing it, like making meals with the other sailors and the locals and going to dinners and just going on hikes, going fishing, going for a, a snorkel or a scuba. Like you're spending no money and your day is jammed full, but you're doing one thing for hours with a community of people. And it's, it's just a different level of engagement. And that's, that's the part that I miss most about it. Cause everybody's so busy and myself included now that I'm back in, in, our culture uh it's hard to remember that it you know we built our lifestyles here yeah and it's it can be changed and you know action show priorities so like taking the time to go enjoy you know the marshland around here the low country is amazing jumping on a boat and go there's the other thing too like i i'm not actually plugging them but freedom boat club <laughs> like I, I got the weekday deal i can't afford the weekend thing but for 200 bucks a month Anybody wants to go get on a boat, go fishing, hang out, like, tell me. I will unplug any day of the week. My um, my business partner, Matt, he's big on yeah. the Freedom Boat Club. They're right part on. Of that. Yeah, they love it. It's great. So, yeah, he, he, he brags about it all the time. And they got like a – so, you know, I go north to Michigan. So, I've been, me and my wife have been talking about it because around the Great Lakes, yeah. Freedom Boat Club has a bunch of – A ton lakes, of stuff. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like all – that. And there were, you get reciprocal privileges everywhere. So, like, anywhere you go, you can go check out a boat. That's a great business model. Yeah. Um, all right. So, I guess we'll shift a little bit. So Back to real estate. Back to real estate, kind of. <laughs> so, like, kind of my kind of my closing thing. So, uh, first off, who are you listening to? Who are you, who are you following? Where are you getting education? Good stuff. Um, like, the Real Estate Disruptors is one of my go-to podcasts. Um, Steve, I forget his last name, Trank, I think. Uh, I was following Pace Morby for a little while. Um, real big on sub two stuff. I just don't. I I moved a little way from that. Um, I'm more just head down grind right now. Like I've actually doesn't mean I won't need to change in the future, but I've I've got a groove that's working for me. So I'm just kind of rocking that right now without <laughs> moving too far out of it. Do you um like do you listen to very many podcast? Do you listen to, uh, read listen to very many audio audible books or anything like no, that? I read like every single night. I read before I go to bed. That's that's what, my thing. What do you read? Um, I went back to a classic. Like the last business book I read was Grit. Uh, and it's it's at all. I never read Grit. Definitely read Grit. Okay. If you Who's if you not, do you remember? If you're, uh, no. Okay. If you don't read Grit, Google Grit. You'll get her name. And there's either, I believe it's a TED Talk or How I Built This. Okay. Um, and her her one-hour speech will give you most of what you need to know. The book reinforces it. But it's basically success doesn't come down to talent. It comes down to work. Like who whoever does the work is going to get uh, the result that they're looking for more so than anybody that has natural talent. Yeah. Um. I think it's a it's a cool and important lesson. And then, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, right? Every time. Every time. Every single time. Yeah. Um, and then I also just read uh, the book Thief. Like this is just straight fiction. Like unplug your brain. It's absolutely gorgeously written. That's um, so good. Yeah. It's 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 the uh, the narrator is death. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a phenomenal read. Like just the the from a wordsmithing perspective and the the turn of the phrase and the the story itself and the construction is absolutely spectacular. The, the book, book thief. The book yeah, thief. if you want something non-business just to just to read and unwind, it's great. Okay, I'll have to remember that. The book thief and grit. Grit. Okay, I'll have to ask you about that. That's the podcast when we look it up. Yeah. Um, then the last thing is somebody's coming into this day one. 
Mm-hmm. What are you telling them to do? What's your advice? Oh, like they have no idea what they're doing yet? No idea. Well, I mean, maybe they know the basics. You know, like somebody's just like set out to wholesale. They've watched, you know, how many hours max, max, well, whatever. But they're coming to this market. What would you tell them to do day one? What are, What are you saying? Or you, you 12 months ago. How about that? Or 10 months ago. Let's do somebody else. Like, I had so much. <laughs> I had too much help from my brother coming in. Um, but, like, if, if I'm somebody that doesn't have a family member or mentor built in that's actually giving me guidance on what to do, and I'm going to give them actionable advice, get Deal Machine or something similar and start driving looking for distressed properties. Do something different that everybody else does, and that's throw it in a Deal Machine. But when you've stopped in front of the house, uh, you can skip trace it inside deal machine so that you've got a name, a phone number, and hopefully an email address. Put that stuff in a database that you're going to call every single day when you get home. And then go knock on the door once you've made a record of that stuff. Start talking to the individual owner of that property as soon as you can. Because knowing that property exists without talking to the owner and building rapport gets you nowhere. Um, once you've got rapport with someone. If you don't know what you're doing yet, if you don't have paper and contracts and buyers and all the stuff that actually sees a deal through, call me, call you. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can call us. Yeah, anybody. Reach out to somebody that's established in this market. And here's the deal that I make. Like I get a ton of people wanting to work with me or if I teach or stuff like this, and this is what I tell everybody. On the first deal you bring me, I'm going to give you a $1,000 referral fee. But what I'm going to do is give you my papers. I'm going to walk you through the buy process. I'm going to have you in the house with me as I do the inspection so you can see exactly how I come up with my numbers. And then the most important part of it is how do I interact with the seller? And I'm going to walk you through every step of that. And I'm going to give you every tool you need through the time that I've sold that property. That person that brought that deal to me can be a part of every single step of it, full transparency, um, plus a thousand bucks on top of that. So if you want to learn it, a thousand bucks, a lot of people think that's nothing, but. Like the value of what you've learned through that is yeah. is the value of the deal. The idea being that we do one and then you literally don't need me anymore after that. You can go take 100% of every house you want to buy after that because you'll have hard money, you'll have contracts, you'll know closing attorneys, you'll know exactly how to run it. Where can people find you? Uh, this is the funny thing. Like I don't have a business-facing uh, website like SpanishMossHomeBuyers.com. You're going to come in as a lead call, which means I'm going to call you back right away, but I'm not going to like that very much. <laughs> um, I shouldn't do this, but sure, why not? So my personal cell phone Ooh, is... I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Do you have an email? How about email? Yeah, we'll do email. Yeah, because okay. who knows? Like, Yeah. You know, if I get... I don't want to like... Oh, it's going to blow up. <laughs> um, we, we'll do email. So hit me on email and email. Um, I check it every day. So it's Lee, L-E-E, at winterscapital.com and it's w-i-n-t-e-r-s and the word capital c-a-p-i-t-a-l.com sounds great man thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me it's been a pleasure